Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. It was about four years ago when I told one of my friends <clears throat> that I enjoyed drinking B&B brandy when I was stationed in Vietnam. He looked at me and without hesitation he said, you must have gotten pretty thirsty after killing babies all day long. I was appalled, but I didn't say anything. I found out later on he was in kindergarten when I was a captain in Vietnam. He had no idea of our experiences or what happened overseas. I returned from Vietnam 45 years ago, and I really haven't talked about it. Not to my wife, not to my children, not for 45 years. I have a small display of my military achievements in the library upstairs, but I do not have, nor have I ever worn a Vietnam veteran's hat. Before going to Vietnam, I asked a returning pilot, what's it like? What what do I need to know? To, what can I expect over there? And he said, don't ask, because we just don't talk about it. And I haven't, not for these 45 years. So tonight, this is my coming out story. I was stationed in Los Angeles as a missile propellants officer for the space program when I found out <clears throat> my replacement had shown up on station. An overseas assignment was in the works for me. but. I was within six months of finishing a master's degree in chemistry, so I got it delayed, but with the understanding, whatever came up, I had to take it. In Vietnam, it was. After a grueling 24-hour flight, I arrived in Saigon at 0500 hours, the 27th of July, 1972. Before deplaning, they told us to <clears throat> start taking malaria tablets, watch out for rabid dogs, and watch out for venomous snakes. Now, they call them two-steppers, because if you got bit in two steps, you were dead. I was not ready for any of this. I caught a flight, and I arrived in Da Nang to check in with my commanding officer, who was a Lieutenant Colonel Custer. <laughs> now, he was not the Colonel Custer, but it was ominous nonetheless. And. Uh, <laughs> It, it, it was ominous nonetheless. It didn't take long for us to settle into the background noise that would accompany us for the duration of our tour over there. The first week, I was driving into work and we were hit by a rocket attack. I turned off the Jeep and dove into a ditch. I was later congratulated for being a fast learner. Rocket attacks would continue two to three times a month. It was the luck of the draw whether you got hit or not. The closest one missed me by about 20 feet. I remember distinctly the nighttime attacks. The giant voice would come over the intercom and say, Da Nang is under attack. We'd jump out of bed, put our helmet on, roll into a flak vest, and get under the bed. I did a lot of thinking at that time. I'd like to tell you I was on my knees praying, but I was just trying to get as low as I could. When the attack was over, we'd get up, go back to bed and sleep as if nothing happened. That's the way it was. You'd be hit by an attack and then it would be quiet. 
I was the base fuels management officer. I was responsible for refueling the aircraft, running the service station, making sure the generators for the hospital and the water heaters for the barracks were filled with diesel. If it was petroleum, I was responsible for it. The fighter aircraft would take off about 0600 each morning on their first mission. They'd come back around 11 to refuel, rearm, grab something to eat, and go back out in the afternoon. My job was to get it done and get it done fast. The mission continued seven days a week without let up. There was always something going on. The chaplain used to put a little sign up that would say, today is Sunday. And that's how we knew it was the end of another week in Vietnam. There were five of us that lived in a hooch or a uh, three bedroom uh, barracks. We had a small kitchen and a bathroom in the middle. Alcohol and tobacco products were rationed on a monthly basis, and we could get limited supplies at the base exchange. But we always looked forward to getting a care package from home. My wife sent me some pecans so I could make a pecan pie for Thanksgiving. I didn't know how to make a pecan pie. <laughs> but I went to the library and got a recipe that didn't look too bad. So I was making the pecan pie in the, in the kitchen with the other officers. Now there was a one officer there, he was from the south. And, uh, but he was a rather simple frugal guy, and not the southern gentleman that you would think he would be. But he scolded me because I just dumped the pecans into the pie. He said you need to arrange the pecans in circles and make a nice pattern on the top. So there we were rearranging the pecans on the top of the pie. Sort of a silly thing to do in war zone, but in the end it reminded us of home. We watched and listened from overseas as Nixon tried to negotiate peace, and that failed. The word of the day was that peace is at hand, but that was false hope, and that dragged on and on and on, and we got tired of it. In December, Nixon escalated the war, and he authorized Operation Linebacker II. Now, this was strategic bombing of military and industrial facilities in and around Hanoi. We called it affectionately the 12 Days of Christmas. Each day, squadrons of B-52s would fly over Da Nang, and then they'd head north towards Hanoi. Later on, they'd come back in the same formation, and we could count some of the losses. But we knew <clears throat> major damage was being inflicted on the North. It was unsettling for us because we were concerned that the local Viet Cong were going to step up their attacks on us in retaliation. And the uh, fighter uh, pilots that were doing base defense, they indicated that, in fact, artillery was being moved up closer to the base. In January, the Army side of the base was, was attacked big time. And we were scared and shocked over the magnitude of the attack. But we found out rather quickly that it was actually friendly fire. It turns out a pilot from Thailand had mixed up his coordinates, and his squadron of F-4 fighters had actually ended up bombing the base instead of his target a mile to the north. It was not a good day for anybody, but at least there were no casualties that day. But I did lose two petroleum storage tanks. We were able to find some hum humor in the whole situation. And we, in jest, we circulated a flyer around the base, and we paralleled the North Vietnamese language when we said, the Army will not negotiate peace 
as long as the Air Force continues to bomb. <laughs> it may be crass, but we had another sick joke. It, we knew it was the end of a losing war, and we were at the end of it. So our sick joke was, who wants to be the last American to die for their country? It went on and on and on like a bad dream. You woke up in the morning, it was there. You went to work, it was there. You went to sleep at night, it was there. One of our favorite songs we liked to listen to was John Denver's Take Me Home Country Roads for obvious reasons. This was my escape. For just a few moments, I could envision being far, far away in some quiet, peaceful country road. We used humor or whatever we could to get through the grueling months uh, in the tour in Vietnam. It was sort of like the characters on MASH, where they do the crazy, zany things. That's how they put up with the stress of the situation. And it was the same thing for us. When I came back from Vietnam for several years, I couldn't watch MASH. And even now, it brings back some of these memories. On the 29th of March, 1973, I was on the last flight taking combat troops out of Vietnam. Giddy up. We were counted. <laughs> Thank you. We were counted by the North and the South Vietnamese to make sure that all the Americans had left the country because the POWs were being released from the North. Shortly after takeoff, the pilot announced over the intercom, we have now departed Vietnam airspace. The aircraft erupted in wild celebration. There was another John Denver song we used to listen to, and that was the Readjustment Blues. Now this song was never released in the States, but it was released overseas, which is how we got our hands on the thing. And it talked about an infantry soldier coming back from Vietnam, and he goes to Washington, D.C., and there's a parade or a demonstration going on. And he sees the flag, the flag that he fought for overseas. It was flying there, but it was flying upside down. There were domestic men there, and they were wearing uniforms like he used to wear. And they were carrying guns like he carried overseas. But this time, this time, he was a civilian, and they were pointing their guns at him. Welcome home, soldier. When I came home, the war was over, so I didn't see the demonstrations that other people may have seen. I remember landing in San Francisco and feeling that first cool breeze I gave thanks and told myself I'm never going to be shot at again. When we came home, we weren't being shot at, but we weren't welcome either. We were told not to wear our uniform off base, and we knew not to bring any attention to the fact that we had served in Vietnam. But what I wish the people would have understood at that time is that we were just normal, honest people trying to do the very best we could in a very turbulent time. Since Vietnam, wars have changed a bit. Instead of counterforce in some faraway country, it's countervalue in any hometown. The despised Vietnam vet has now been replaced by soldiers being held in high regard. It has taken terrorist attacks on our nation to give the veterans the respect that they deserve. Looking back, I'm thankful I survived Vietnam it had an effect on me. It taught me to try to do the best I can every day and to be thankful for what I have. But I'd rather be remembered 
for my peacetime accomplishments in a 20-year Air Force career, and I'd like to be remembered for the work I did as an environmental scientist in Iowa. And probably most of all, I'd like to be remembered as a friend to all the people I've met along the way. Because it's here, it's here in Iowa where I found my home and I found my country roads. Thank you. Yeah.